Welcome to the Two Cities Podcast. I'm John Anthony Dunn, and today we're going to talk about law and order. And joining me to discuss this, we have Amber Bowen, who is a PhD candidate in philosophy at the University of Aberdeen. How's it going, Amber? It's going very well. And we have special guest, Dr. Aaron Griffith, who did an MDiv and a PhD at Duke Divinity and currently is assistant professor of history at Sattler College in Boston. He has a new book coming out this fall called God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America with Harvard University Press. How's it going, Aaron? It's going great. Thanks for having me. So tell us, uh, I didn't know God was a fan of law and order. <laughs> uh, yeah, you know, this, the, it's funny. I, the, the title is doing a lot of work. <laughs> and it's, uh, there's, I think there's like several layers to it. And I'm not even sure. There's probably more layers there than even I understand. But uh, uh, yeah, there, there were people in my book that certainly thought so. I will put it that way. That, that, that's awesome. Uh, and there are people who understood law and order in many different ways. So, sure, yeah. sure. Yeah. Well, well, why don't we begin by, by uh, hearing a little bit about what got you interested in this topic? Yeah. Um, so I... There, there's, I guess, sort of two sides to this. There's the academic um, story, and, I, and then there's the personal story. And I'll I'll start with the academic one. But uh, I was looking for a topic to write my dissertation on, and uh, had, was very interested in American religious history, um, particularly the history of evangelical Christians in American public life, um, and was had been reading a lot of really great books on post-World War II evangelical uh, political activism, evangelical culture. Um, just there's a ton of great work out there. And the ways books that are examining how evangelicals dealt with all kinds of political and cultural issues. And then I started uh, getting involved at Duke um, in some, I took a couple of courses on this and started just doing reading on my own, uh, thinking about prisons and thinking about uh, ma- you know, a term like mass incarceration and thinking about the, this broader story of why uh, the United States has so many people in its criminal justice system, um, why it's unique in that way. And I began to wonder what those two stories the history of evangelicalism and the history of the carceral state in the United States, what they had to do with one another. Um, and uh, that I saw some room for historical exploration there. Um, I, there are a lot of great, uh, there's a lot of great work that's been done by legal scholars and anthropologists and theologians talking about uh, religion and criminal justice and even evangelicals and incarceration, but most of it's focused on the contemporary context. Um, and I really wanted to look at where, uh, where do these two historical streams, um, how do they intersect, that of prisons and evangelical religion. Um, so that's, that's the academic side. And uh, like many scholars, there's a personal component too. I was uh, in divinity school doing my master's of divinity um, and, and working at a church uh, doing an internship. I was also working in prison ministry and was seeing firsthand both in prison ministry and at my church um, how issues of, of criminal justice 
of the law, of um, imprisonment, were, uh, were everywhere. And, and this really became clear. I remember when I was working at this church and there was a break-in at the church and, and a guy had broken in and stolen some sound equipment. And um, the police had, had caught him uh, you know, a few hours later. And then all of a sudden, we as a church had to respond. And we had to think about what, what are our obligations theologically? What is our history here? How do we relate to this particular situation? And, um, and how do we think about this uh, in a pastoral way? Is this something we just go along with, you know, sort of the normal expectations of how we would address this issue? Is there something different we as Christians should do? And I started really seeing a need for uh, reflection on um, situations like this and the, and the conditions that produce them. Um, and that's certainly the case with prison ministry too. I was involved in prison ministry in North Carolina. That was, that was really wonderful. And, uh, and, and yet I saw just firsthand the constraints and the challenges and just the, the ways that um, sometimes the very difficult dilemmas that people doing prison ministries and Christians who are incarcerated face. Um, when it comes to thinking about their faith, um, their obligations in relationship to the state. Hmm. And uh, I felt like I needed to, to write a book to, to dig into that a little more. I, kn- I know uh, Dr. Uh, Douglas Campbell at, at Duke is also heavily involved in prison ministry. I'm curious to know if, if maybe you guys uh, intersected with the, that ministry. Uh, yes, Douglas and I are. Um, I, I've learned so much from him. Hmm. He has really... I took a course with him when I was a master's student. Um, that was sort of my first foray into thinking uh, theologically and thinking um, historically about, about prisons and religion. And uh, he has been a great conversation partner um, over the years and his work on Paul and thinking about um, Paul and prison in mm-hmm. the Bible, in the New Testament um, mm-hmm. and how um, that shapes Paul's theology is, is really important. And, and I've been a big fan of that over the years. So, yeah. So Aaron, you have a book coming out here pretty soon with Harvard university press. And I had the privilege of getting a sneak peek of it, uh, in advance and it looks fabulous. I'm excited to read it more fully, but in the book, you give a lot of history. You trace the history. Um, of the evangelical relationship to this concept of law and order and how they've processed it theologically and socially in different ways. And so I'm wondering if you could just maybe hit the highlights and and give us a a really brief overview of that. So in the book, I'm trying to do very broadly three things, um, three arguments that I, I advance. And the first is just simply trying to show how issues of crime and punishment mattered for American evangelicals um, in the second half of the 20th century and were central to their entry into American public life. Um, And this isn't just true regarding official or uh, formal um, declarations on, you know, criminal justice, but the way that uh, discussions of crime and punishment shaped 
very uh, shaped parts of evangelical culture that we may not even think of as having anything to do with mass incarceration. Um, so for example, I, you know, I talk a lot about not only prison ministries and not only evangelical interest in law and order politics, but books like David Wilkerson's The Cross and the Switchblade, which was this massive bestseller. Um, Wilkerson was a Pentecostal and, uh, and was the book is about his ministry to gangs in uh, in New York in the 50s and the early 60s, and looking at how concerns about crime and punishment even shaped works like that, um, and how that can help us understand evangelical influence in American life in, in new ways. Um, so the second part, though, is that I the second argument, I guess you could say, is that the ways evangelicals uh, understood and advocated for, um, advocated on issues of criminal justice, um, sometimes were very punitive. Sometimes were very, uh, we might say, focused on tough on crime issues. But a lot of times, what I think was very surprising to me as I did the research for the book was seeing how so often evangelicals framed their concerns about crime and punishment in terms of consensus in terms of neutrality, uh, in terms of colorblindness, of racial equality even. Um, and this I think is a point that, I, that was most surprising to me in my research, but that really comes out when you, when you read the book and see how often evangelicals are trying to, um, trying to make alliances with non-evangelicals on issues related to crime and punishment are trying to show how policies, tough on crime policies will benefit uh, African-American neighborhoods. Um, and I think this is a, a move that in some ways like is, is challenging to understand historically, but really uh, is, is helpful for understanding why it's so hard for us even today to unpack all the different layers of law and order politics um, and why, uh, yeah, why not only for evangelicals, but even um, just Americans more generally um, want to believe that the police are there to protect them, want to believe uh, that laws are there for a good reason, but then also are trying to understand why those good intentions go awry, um, why seemingly uh, well-intentioned efforts uh, can have such harmful consequences, especially for, for those who are poor or who are people of color. Um, and then the third sort of big point that I, I make in the book is just trying to get us to pay attention to conversion. Um, so I really stress the political import of soul saving of evangelicals um, evangelizing and trying to convert people to Christianity, um, not only in terms of evangelicals' own conversions, although that's certainly part of it. You know, so someone like Chuck Colson, a famous uh, evangelical prison reformer, has a very dramatic conversion to Christianity, and that changes helps change his own mind in terms of his political understanding of criminal justice. Uh, but conversion itself is embedded in a political frame um, for evangelicals. And it, it becomes a uh, part of the 
their understanding of what prison is supposed to do, what prison is supposed to be for people who are caught up within it, that they are supposed to have a, um, ideally some sort of dramatic turning away from their past of sin um, and a journey into something new. And so I try to really pay attention to how something that seemingly is very spiritual or very religious uh, conversion um, to Christianity is uh, linked to very material realities, um, linked to political realities even. Um, so those are the three sort of big points I'm, or big things that I tease out in the book, but chronologically the book begins in the early 20th century. And the first chapter is uh, about uh, Protestants, Catholics, and Jews more generally uh, in the late 19th, early 20th centuries and looks at just how crime politics in the United States became religious, how pastors, religious leaders, rabbis, um, began to speak about crime as an issue of religious concern uh, in the 1920s and 30s especially, and how then that set the stage for later religious concern uh, around issues of law and order. Um, so, and from that point on, the rest of the chapters move from evangelical concern about gangs and juvenile delinquency in the 40s and 50s to then evangelical uh, influence in law and order politics in the 60s and 70s evangelical influence in policing. And then I uh, spend the last um, two chapters talking about prison ministry and prison reform um, all the way up to the present. So that's the, that's the big overview. I know that was a lot, but that's, uh, that's where I'm going in this book. I don't even know if this is a very helpful question, but growing up in the evangelical world, I definitely heard a lot about soul saving and the importance of soul saving. But then you also talk a lot about political involvement, too. But then there's also a lot of critique of certain types of Christians who are very socially involved. Hmm. And so that's always been very odd to me that, you know, on one hand, it's like, just work on soul saving. But we also do a lot of political work, too. But yet we critique other forms of social involvement. Um, yeah from other groups of Christians. And that's, that's kind of a perplexity that I still hold. And I'm wondering if you can maybe clarify that for me. Yeah, that's a really good question. This was one of the, this is one of the puzzling things in the book that I, I wrestled with was seeing evangelical Christians, um, many of whom are politically conservative, talking about the state and about the work of government in very skeptical terms very negative terms, you know, that, uh, you know, we even hear some of this language even today, like that the problems we face in our country are really just problems of the heart, um, that these are sin problems. Um, and this, these were things that evangelicals were saying in the 1960s when they were talking about issues of civil rights. They, you know, someone like Billy Graham uh, famously is critiquing Martin Luther King Jr. and the, with these very, you know, very concepts. Um, and saying that you really are only going to solve the race problem, not through legislative enactments or through new laws, but through solving uh, the sin problem in people's, in people's lives individually. At the same time, though, evangelicals um, often are very keen to support parts of, this, of the state's involvement in our lives, like police, like the military, 
Um, and those are very forceful. Those are ways that the, the state is at work in the world that sometimes do not get the same degree of criticism from, uh, from evangelical Christians. And um, as they might talk about like a social program or welfare or something like that. Even the issue of government overreach. Mm-hmm. So, that's, so there's the sin problem. That's a big problem. But then there's also the government overreach problem. And that's a, a big problem. But law and order seems to be different. Like you, you yeah. want a strong arm when it comes to those things. You want a farther reach when it comes to those things. So I, yeah. I don't know if you can maybe clarify why yeah. that's the case. So I, I think part of this is there's sort of a popular side to this and then there's like kind of the, the, the boring academic side of it. Um, so you, you saw, or I, I think you see theologians in the mid 20th century who are really getting behind this new evangelical movement, people like Carl Henry, um, that come out and say, Yes, the state should be have a very strong arm in terms of enforcement of law, in terms of its violent capacities, the military, police, etc. But it really shouldn't be involved in this other stuff. Um, it should be a restraining force. We should keep people from hurting each other, robbing each other, killing each other. Um, but we shouldn't be trying to, uh, to use the state to promote justice in more positive ways. Um, and, and Henry, I think I, in the book talk about that move that he makes and he draws upon people like John Calvin, uh, to make that move. Um, that's the academic side and that develops into, I think, sort of modern, there's a stream of modern conservative, not only, uh, Christian thought, but just modern conservative thinking that I think reflects that even today, but then there's just the popular side of it. Um, where pastors are trying to solve problems in their neighborhoods. And they're like, well, I don't really know anything about (laughs) laws that the state legislature is going to be passing or even how to think about that. But what I do know is that I can go down the street and like talk to the gang uh, leader and hopefully invite him to a Bible study. And maybe that will change his mind. Maybe that will change his heart. Um, And I think that it's the interplay between those two perspectives, that popular side of evangelism, of um, sometimes just a sense of wanting to make a difference personally, and then the political philosophy, the political theology that uh, helps to make sense of it on on a larger scale, that I think that's what develops in my story is that that interplay. But what I try to really show in the book is this, whether you want to call it like individualistic or sort of conversionist um, theology is powerful and it's easy to dismiss it um, because it sounds, it can sound, it can be frustrating in a post civil rights uh, world, I think, to hear, we, we look back on people like Billy Graham who were saying things like racism is just a sin problem. And we rightly uh, see that as a oversimplified, hyper-individualistic um, reading of, of the situation and, and all the problems associated with it and the assumptions that Graham is making, I think, racially that, are, that have problems. But 
that same move, I think, actually enabled some evangelicals to develop a pretty profound critique of state systems when they went awry. Um, so, for example, this is exactly how contemporary critics of mass incarceration that are conservative argue. They say, we are against all forms of governmental overreach. We are against all the ways that the government, you know, involves itself in our lives in improper, unhelpful ways. And that includes the criminal justice system. So we aren't just in the same way, they would say, that we aren't going to solve issues of poverty by the government intervening in the economy. We're also not going to solve issues of public safety uh, or of crime fundamentally by just locking people up, by increasing the power of the state. And I think that, that that's the argument that Chuck Colson uh, and other people who develop a conservative reformist approach to criminal justice, that's the argument they want to make. Um, and, it's, and it's a powerful one. I think it, it allows them then to develop alliances um, with others who may not share their philosophical commitments, but also want to reduce the size of prisons. Would you say on the whole that the kind of evangelical approach or understanding of how your criminal justice and the state's you know, use of punishment should function on the spectrum of kind of retributive to restorative would be much more in the retributive side? It depends. Uh, when and where and, and who you're talking about here. But sure. I, I think, so in the book, I look at how this changed um, and how when we look at ministers, uh, evangelical ministers like David Wilkerson, um, who are working in uh, urban context, mid 20th century, they're very traditional they're very they're not progressives right um mm -hmm. they they want to just save souls and but what that means then is that they actually develop a pretty restorative understanding of what justice should be because they're so focused on these individual lives of the, the people that they see every day um that they they aren't really that worried about uh you know if if one of them encounters someone who's you know, stolen a wallet. Um, yeah, they don't want this guy to steal a wallet, but they want them to make that right. And, but they're not interested in them just seeing, being punished um, to balance the scales. Now, that is not, that approach is not being called restorative justice by right. David Wilkerson or whoever, but mm -hmm. I think that the sentiment is there. Um, and it's one that then is developed later on in the eighties and nineties by evangelicals um, mm -hmm. who are using that word restorative um, and borrowing from people like the uh, Mennonite uh, activist, Howard Zare. But then in the sixties, uh, you see much more of this retributive understanding of justice where it is, you see evangelicals who look out at the streets and see protest, um, see uprisings in places like Watts um, or Newark. And they, they are not interested in, in not only not interested in restorative <laughs> justice, um, but they're not even really interested in addressing this in a, in a, spiritual way at all. Um, they say that this is something for the state to clamp down on. Uh, we need to lock people up. We need to make the streets safe and balance the scales of justice. And justice mm -hmm. demands that we take uh, 
crime seriously. So I think mm-hmm. in the 60s, you really see this retributive sentiment renewed. Um, and then, but it's that interplay between the, the two, the restorative uh, and the retributive, I think that sometimes evangelicals hold both at the same time. Mm-hmm. Um, just as I think many of us do. Um, mm-hmm. there's, there's lots of instances, I think, today where you can see retributive sentiments uh, voiced um, on all sides of the political spectrum, depending on the issue, right? And mm-hmm. uh, I think it's important to recognize that that impulse is, is within a lot of us, um, uh, even as the restorative one might be as well. So when the war on crime really started and this be tough on crime and those sorts of things. I know that over, maybe that's not the right word, but over sentencing was a common practice or became a common practice where you you take at crime X that typically would be three years in prison, Mm -hmm. but you make it 30 years in prison. I don't know if you discuss any of this in your book, Aaron, but I'm curious because that sort of tough on crime policy, in some ways it almost relativizes things, right? Because it's, it's like, uh, well, that crime was worth three years, five years ago, but now it's worth 30 years in, in terms of, of what you have to pay to work it off or whatever. Uh, so it's a, it's a kind of retributive justice, but it's an increased payment for, for the crime that really does kind of relativize things you you stop and think like well are we just assigning price tags to different crimes and they can be switched off whenever you know so i don't know if you talk about that at all but i'd be curious to hear your thoughts on that so i do in the book talk some about the rise of of mandatory minimums is is what they're often called you know so when a person commits a certain kind of crime then it's designated that at a minimum you're going to get this sentence and there's nothing that a judge uh, or a jury or whoever can do to change that um, because society has deemed that this offense is, you know, at a minimum needs to be dealt with in this way. And, you know, mandatory minimums became, they were something that at the time in the seventies were lauded by uh, a lot of different kinds of political leader, leaders all over the political spectrum um, because they were seen as a indicator of fairness in some ways, um, but tough on crime folks uh, really use them though to advance a more punitive agenda. And the result is then that, you know, you have people who get um, put in prison for like a drug offense um, that are, you know, maybe in prison for a decade or more. Um, and, And I think anyone today or most people today are like, how is that yeah, how is that addressing that fundamental problem, um, which is a problem of drug addiction or or drug selling drugs or whatever? Um, but then, yeah, how does it? Even if you believe in a sense that the scales need to be balanced, that there is something that the state should do to make this right. Why a decade in prison, or why X number of years for this? I think this is actually where restorative justice advocates, both evangelicals and non-evangelicals, they really drilled into this problem of saying, who's missing here? Well, who's missing is the victim of a crime. Um, Because when you focus on balancing the scales, it's not actually about the harm 
the material reality is the harm that was done in a community to a community or to an individual. It's just this sort of metaphysical uh, construct of, of a harm that's been done. Um, and so we should go talk to the victim. We should bring the victim of a crime in and ask what they need, what they want. Ask them, how much money did you lose? Or ask representatives from a neighborhood what drug addiction's doing to their neighborhood. What, what could be done to solve this? And I think that that's really where restorative justice advocates um, were able to latch on to this sort of, it seems like a very abstract intellectual problem of how to understand harm and how to diagnose it, but it really has, I think, material consequences because then we start to think like, well, why aren't we sentencing someone who has drugs to this many years in prison? Who actually did this harm? And um, perhaps it's the person themselves, themselves who's addicted to drugs that's being harmed. And how can we then address that issue? Uh, And is prison the best way to do that? So in the book, like this really crystallizes, I saw around issues like the death penalty because that's the ultimate um, punishment. There's no going back. And evangelicals really were interested in maintaining the death penalty um, because they, I think, were very fundamentally invested in the sense that there are certain crimes that must be dealt with in a way that balances the scales and is not restorative in the least um, to, to, the, to the offender. Um, that is very much focused on the, you know, sort of this, this harm that's been done and uh, that has to be addressed in, in a very serious way. Now, this, of course, would get complicated when an offender would convert to Christianity, right? Um, so if someone who is on death row has a conversion experience and has their sins forgiven by God and you know, maybe even confesses and, and shows, you know, shows how much they repudiate their past self. Um, what do you do then? And evangelicals really, I think, wrestled with this problem of does grace go to work in that situation? What does divine grace, no one was questioning whether or not this person would, you know, receive salvation, but does that divine grace have anything to do with the law. Um, and some evangelicals would say, no, it doesn't. Um, that in fact, it may actually be, uh, some evangelicals in the sixties would say this, it may actually be that threat of punishment that will induce people to convert. Um, and that I think is, uh, that, that was something a lot of evangelicals believed then. And I think, um, a lot of people believe that today. I wonder if there's a bit of a kind of bifurcation going on where in some evangelicals minds, like in the scenario you were just outlining, I was thinking about this earlier when I asked the question about the retribution restoration, because I I wonder if maybe there's this kind of uh, sense in which, you know, the, retribution is bodily and the and the restoration is soulish so there's this kind of kind of separation of body and soul and so what 
what we're really interested is in their conversion of, of their soul and sort of like we can kill their body or whatever. Uh, and, and, and that could be, you know, retributively executed uh, and, and yet hope for the restoration of their soul. I wonder if, if maybe uh, you might be able to speak to that. Yeah. I mean, there were certainly, there's, there were certainly people who made that bifurcation and um, would even go out of their way to talk about how con- like a conversion inside a prison um, by someone who's incarcerated would not and should not result in any material changes to their condition. But then I think you, you, there were instances that I saw in my, my research and I, I read about this with someone like Chuck Colson and then other people in the modern evangelical criminal justice reform movement who have experiences of prison themselves. Um, so Chuck Colson is incarcerated um, at a prison in Alabama for, you know, like seven months or so for various Nixon administration illegalities and it's he's miserable it's awful and and this is like a minimum security facility too but it destroys his soul he sees how awful life in prison is and how pointless it is like it's not inducing you know any sort of restoration or even like spiritual growth he's i I mean i saw reading through some of his journals uh, or some of his writings while he's in prison just how despondent he is and how this is hindering his spiritual growth in many, in many ways. And I think in his story and the stories of people like Pat Nolan, who's a a contemporary criminal justice reform advocate, um, who's, who's a conservative, uh, who also went to prison, they have a personal taste of like what prison does to you. And they see that it's not an asset spiritually, uh, or it's in the long haul, it is a liability in, uh, in terms of getting people to understand um, their crimes, in terms of restoring them to their communities, and even just making, their, making the, the United States a safer place. Um, and you don't really get that, I think, unless you, ha- unless you spend some time in a prison. Um, unless you start to see firsthand what prison life can be like. Um, so I think that's main, that's not the only difference, um, but that's a big first step. Mm. And even prison ministers, I have a, you know, a chapter in the book on evangelical prison ministry and they had all, they came to all kinds of different political conclusions. Um, but I think most of them because of their time spent inside of prisons they knew something was was wrong um they knew that this there there were problems they didn't that didn't mean they always were willing to speak out or to advocate um but it they had a sense that uh that this is not this can be a problematic situation even just for pastoral care even just for getting people to come to christ Mm. Yeah, that's fascinating. Um, speaking of Colson and <clears throat> Nixon, my my mind immediately goes to you know Nixon's appeal to be a law and order president. You know, to tie into the title of of your book and and how that reflects you know 
more recent claims by our current president of being a law and order president in the face of protests and riots, um, you know, various things going on in, in Seattle with the Chaz Chop situation and, then, and more recently uh, in Portland. And, and I'm wondering if you could speak into some of, you know, uh, the appeal and the values that that is tapping into, you know, in terms of how Trump's base, for example, uh, might appreciate, you know, w- what, what he's trying to draw upon. Yeah, it's it's a good question. So I think first I would want to I think Trump is certainly, you know, he's claimed the the title of the law and order candidate and he uses that language a lot. Um he used it when he was running for president, uses it while he's been president, and Nixon used that too. Nixon made that same kind of proclamation. Um but as historians like Elizabeth Hinton and um, scholars like Naomi Murakawa have pointed out, and I think there's, this is a really important point to make, law and order politics is a bipartisan affair in modern American history. Um, it is something that politicians, presidential politicians especially from both parties participate in in different ways. Um, but, you know, so uh, during the 90s, um, for example, Bill Clinton is making very uh, conscious moves to portray himself as tough on crime, um, both as a candidate and as a president. Um, and that is through symbolic actions, like when he is running for president, making sure to fly to Arkansas, back to Arkansas to oversee the execution, oversee executions. Um, uh, to his time while he's in office when he is uh, joining with Republicans to pass tough on crime legislation. Um, so I, I think we should just make sure to recognize how this is a, it manifests itself in different ways, but I think law and order politics and that trust in uh, policing as a way to solve social problems is, a, is in my view, a, a very much something that a perspective that has um, that ranges across the political spectrum. Um, and that being said, I think in this current moment, though, Trump is making a move similar to Nixon and similar to Reagan when he when Reagan was governor in California, where they are pointing to protest. Um, protest against injustices, some of which are injustices themselves that Trump or politicians point to and say that this is wrong. So Trump can get on camera and say that the killing of George Floyd is wrong, and yet the protests that have emerged in in its wake um, are also wrong. And I think he has been able to cultivate this the sense of disorder in the streets, um, this um, vision of urban areas particularly being unsafe, of places he constantly references places like Chicago as being, you know, quote, like war zones. And, and Trump is trying to conjure up for his base, in my view, um, a sense of that these are places that are disorderly. These are places that deserve to be policed and that I am the only person who can do anything about it because I'm um, the only person who's willing to use force um, to, to deal with it. And of course, there's a racialized component here too, right? It's, it's important 
that we really recognize this, that when Trump talks about disorder, he is making sure to reference cities. He's making sure to reference protests that are usually led and organized uh, with reference to issues of, of racial injustice and that are often organized by um, African-Americans, people of color. And uh, I think he is able to have enough plausible deniability to say that this is not a race issue, this is a public safety issue, or this is a crime issue. At the same time, though, it, it seems to me um, that this is clearly a move that's that, um, by him in the same way that it was about Nixon uh, to cater to white supporters, um, white supporters who are interested in maintaining um, you know, the racial status quo. And that's why, like, we can go back and look at Nixon's uh, advisors who were saying this stuff behind the scenes all the time. You know, so H.R. Haldeman, one of Nixon's advisors, is, uh, has written about how all the law and order politicking they did, all, the, um, all of Nixon's critiques of protests in the streets um, was designed to engender support from whites, um, from suburban whites. And uh, I think Trump's doing the same thing today. Um, it's very, you know, there's slippage there sometimes. Like you can see uh, moments where he's not very eloquent in, in the way he does it. But it seems to me that's, that's clearly what's, what's going on. So, Aaron, I've heard many people say things like society is based on law and order, uh, particularly in the wake of current dynamics. You know, society is based on law and order. And if we don't have law and order, we don't have a society. And I thought multiple times, I think what you mean is that society is based on rule of law. And I understand how you might conflate those two or, or mix them up or confuse them. And I'm wondering if, if you think that's the case, if you, if you agree with that, if you could explain to us you know, what's the difference between law and order and rule of law. Yeah, so that's a good question. Um, I'll, I'll go at this from sort of two different angles. Um, the first is to make a distinction between rule of law and law and order politics. Um, so rule of law typically refers to the law being enforced equally, uh, consistently, non-arbitrarily. So if you, if you steal something, it shouldn't matter who you are, where you're from, what your political party is. Uh, none of that should matter. Um, I almost started singing a Backstreet Boys song there. <laughs> it shouldn't matter who you are, where you're from, what you did. <laughs> uh, yeah, it's the Backstreet Boys uh, legal uh, philosophy. No, um, yeah, it's just when the state decides to, to, uh, how to address this offense, um, it's going to do so equally. Uh, it's going to do so consistently. And it also means that the state has to deal with offenses in a predictable, routinized manner. Um, you can't try people in secret. You can't have cruel and unusual punishment. Um, there must be fairness. There must be equality. I think these are sort of the general principles when people use the phrase rule of law, like that's what they're getting at. And there's obviously, you know, contextual um, historical dimensions to this, but law and order to me, though, is different um, law and order in the abstract, I think might be something that 
is used as a phrase uh, or an idea similarly to rule of law, but I think historically speaking, it's a, it's a phrase in modern American politics that's been used to refer to this, to the need to crack down on what's perceived as social disorder. Um, so in the 1950s and 60s, segregationists would label civil rights protesters as threats to law and order. Politicians, uh, would declare themselves as law and order candidates uh, in the wake of urban uprisings. Um, and you can see here how law and order politics often carries with it a racialized uh, frame. Um, law and order is named as desirable because it is black and brown people who are advocating and working for change. And, are, and, uh, and therefore, I think it's, we should remember then that those who bear the brunt of law and order politics um, are those same people, are uh, those who are deemed to be disorderly and therefore punishable, which in American history um, has been people of color. So this is, I think, what then enables, ironically, like the, not only the cracking down, the punitive dimensions in American politics, um, but it also results in, we might even say the undermining of the rule of law. Law and order can undermine the rule of law because it reifies racist assumptions about who deserves policing, who deserves punishment, um, and it can result in leaders, uh, politicians who defend or overlook the improper use of force by police or the misconduct of law enforcement. Um, and there's a, there's a great uh, piece in Vox from a couple of years ago by Amy Erica Smith that makes this point. Um, that talks about how law and order politicians um, are regularly willing to violate the law <laughs> and to protect lawbreakers who they see as on their side. Um, so it's not about equal protection. It's about mobilizing the power of the state and the support of voters to target certain kinds of people who are deemed disorderly. Um, so I think that's the big difference, but it can get complicated. And this, this is sort of the second point I want to make. Um, and I, I try to talk about this some in my book, and I, I build on the work of scholars like Naomi Murakawa um, at Princeton to try to show how claims for the neutral, orderly, predictable rule of law, um, how those claims can work in service of racialized aims um, and can be mobilized by law and order politicians. And I think we see this with uh, debates about colorblindness in American politics and culture today. On the face of it, colorblindness seems like uh, an achievement in favor of the rule of law, right? It seems to connote equality and fairness. Um, but of course, politicians have been for decades using colorblind rhetoric in service of policies that have uh, dramatically um, racially disproportionate outcomes. And so the question then becomes, how do we notice when claims about the rule of law are being directed towards unjust or um, unequal ends? And, uh, and what do we do about it? Yeah, that's a really helpful distinction, even in talking about how a lot of times we create laws that are supposed to be based on neutrality and they're supposed to be this, you know, it's one standard for everybody. So it's supposed to be equal. It's supposed to be colorblind as, as you were saying. Um, but in reality, they can be 
so abstract and that they miss the actual person and the actual circumstance and the actual situation. And so in that regard, they can serve to further a disparity or further an injustice, even though they're supposed to be and they're kind of presented as these objective, neutral, and very fair things. Right. Um, so yeah. that, that's really interesting. And, and you just, in an earlier question, talked about instead more of a turn to the focus on the community mm-hmm. and a particular, particular place where the harm was done um, or who it affected uh, to the victim, as you said. And so I'm wondering if maybe is that part of how you see more of a constructive way forward of, of turning towards that kind of local focus um, or what, what are other ways that you see could be fruitful ways for us to think about this moving forward? Yeah, that's, that's a good question. And that's where, you know, I, as a historian, um, I'm always like hesitant to offer then prescriptions, uh, but I've, I think what I learned from my research and what I've, I've learned from other scholars and other people who are doing um, good work uh, in criminal justice reform and restorative justice, I think a turn towards restoration has to be a part of has to be a part of any framework, any policies moving forward. And this is not simply, um, this is not simply as a strategy for like making prisons smaller, although hopefully it will do that. Um, I think it's actually a strategy for dealing with real harms. So when someone is the victim of an offense, um, the you'll see this time and time again, I think like, restorative justice activists and critics of even sort of mass incarceration want to figure out what to do about that, that problem. Um, no one is dismissing the need to deal with uh, violations, um, especially serious uh, violent uh, crimes that people may, may face. And I think that turn to restoration then means we have to ask like, who's at the table? What does a community say about an offense that's been committed? What does a victim say about offense that's been committed? And then what does the offender themselves um, themselves have to say? And then in that context, in that situation, what what can be agreed upon as a way forward? Um, And it's not a move towards just it's not a zero sum equation of either punitiveness on one side or just uh, lackadaisical, you know, quote, forgiveness on one side. It's a sense of how can we address this harm that's been done. Um, And I think that is very difficult work. And that is work that requires a lot of buy-in from a lot of different parties and requires uh, a justice system that's willing to Um, create space for those kinds of conversations. And it requires that we listen to the communities themselves where offenses occur. Uh, And, and that's all of that is very difficult work and it's all stuff that we can do a lot better at. Um, I, I think constructively though, I would also just, I think one thing I learned as I was doing, as I was writing the book 
and just time and time again, it was impressed upon me is the ways that evangelicals, that Christians more generally, and I think probably most Americans, though not all, um, just assume that the prison, that prisons and policing is a normal, natural part of our lives. Um, we have to question that. We have to interrogate that um, idea. And we have to really understand the, the constructed nature of prisons, their emergence in a particular place and time, and the dependence upon, of prisons upon a racialized, unequal society um, in the ways that they currently operate. And I think there is just so much, there's so many assumptions that Christians have about prisons just being these timeless institutions that have always been there and that this is how we are supposed to just deal with uh, offenses in our, you know, in society. And I think that I want to try to point to how that's not true. Um, it's not true historically. And I think just normatively speaking, like we can, uh, we can release ourselves from that, that assumption, from that logic, and think about what else, what other options we might have as a society and as individuals as we envision um, how to deal with very real harms that may, uh, may occur in our communities. Well, thank you so much for that, Aaron. Appreciate the, the context and the various ways in which you have provided some good challenges for us to, to think about. I just want to remind our listeners of um, Aaron Griffith's book that's coming out this fall. It's called God's Law and Order, The Politics of Punishment in Evangelical America with Harvard University Press. So be sure to be on the lookout for that. And just want to thank you, Aaron, for joining us today. Really appreciate it. Yeah, thanks so much for for having me and for the great questions. Um, this has been a lot of fun. Thanks. Well, thank you for answering them. We, we enjoyed getting the, the chance to chat with you about this. like more engagement of theology culture and discipleship from the two cities you can find us on facebook instagram or visit us at our website at the if you like the content that we put out here on the two cities podcast please rate and review us on apple podcasts spotify or wherever else you get your podcasts